Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Neil and Jordan podcast, the podcast where two comedians talk like experts on subjects they are not experts on. And today we are going to be talking about, what did you say you want to talk about? Ethical grazing oh, and cellular okay. agriculture. All right, here we go. Get ready for the flame war. I'm not going to be looking at the comments for this one, but uh, yes, we are discussing holistic grazing. More widely known as holistic management, actually. And there's a very technical difference to this. But first, I'm imagining that we want a message from our sponsors that are also into organic products. All right, well, we'll get, we'll get, we'll get into that then. Uh, <laughs> we are sponsored by Steady Freddy's, steadyforeddy.com. Use the code Neil Jordan. You get 15% off their huge range of men's sexual health products. Sick. If you suffer from premature ejaculation, get some of their delay spray. Give a few sprays on your old Johnson. It's <laughs> the spray to keep the cum at bay. So get yourself some of that. And they've got condoms, wet wipes, ball boost, tablets, everything you need to perform at a high level in the bedroom. So steadyfreddy.com and make sure you read all the labels. Use only as directed. Um, their delay spray is formulated by Dr. David Reiner. All the ingredients are on their website. Use the code Neil Jordan. You get 15% off. And we are also sponsored by Crush Organics. That's Crush with a K. They have a huge range of CBD oil and CBD oil products. Get yourself the diamond oil, the platinum oil, the everyday oil, the night oil. They got it all. I love the platinum oil myself. And they've got pain cream. They've got CBD oil for your pets. They got everything. So uh, if you have trouble sleeping, if you want a few drops that are going to help you de-stress, alleviate a little bit of tension, then go to crushorganics.com. Crush with a K. Use the code Neil, and you get 40% off. Come see us both live. We're uh, all over the country. i got shows in Sydney, Brisbane, Melbourne, Western Sydney, Perth, Wollongong, Newcastle, soon to be Adelaide as well, comedyuntamed.com. You get a smorgasbord of fantastic comedians from each city as well. It's not just comedy. There's improv. Uh, Jordan is also touring all over the place. Where are you going to next? Newcastle, Melbourne. Newcastle and Melbourne. So if you're there... Go see Jordan live. And if you'd like to send in a question, a topic, or a shout-out to this podcast, neilcolhatka.com slash podcasts, and all the money goes to charity. In fact, we've got a question here. So it's somewhat related to our holistic grazing. It's uh, it's about agriculture. So this one's specifically about cellular agriculture. So, um, hey, fellas, love your work. I'll have to buy a ticket to your next improv show in Melbourne, Neil. And Jordan saw your show, very insightful. We'd love to hear more about your learnings of ancient Rome and fewer obscure Von Dutch jokes. No, the Von Dutch references were the best part. Jesus, what yeah. What are you talking I'm about? Sus about this. Okay, so my question, have you heard of cellular agriculture? In case you haven't, it's basically growing agriculture products from cells rather than taking them from animals. Okay, no, then I have heard of that. The most well known of these and the focus of my PhD is cultivated meat. Would love to hear your thoughts on this future food tech that is much better for the environment and the animals. You can learn more about it at the nonprofit I work with here. Uh, HTTPS. Dash, I probably don't need that. www.celluloragricultureaustralia.org. Also, 
if you can bring yourself to watch Channel 9. I'm competing in Australian Ninja Warrior this year. Are Whoa. you joking? Season I starts. I will be watching that. Oh, it's already started. Yeah. Season starts 27th of June, so hopefully he hasn't already done it. But uh, cheers, much love, Brody. So uh, if anyone named Brody has been on Australian Ninja Warrior, hopefully you've uh, dominated that course. Probably from all your uh, uh, the, the cultivated meat that you've been eating. I've heard a lot about this from the Sam Harris podcast, of course, and it is a burgeoning industry and it has a lot of promise. The only problem right now is that the meat is just not cost viable or economical in any no way. way. It's something like the last I heard it was like a couple of grand for like a, a you know a, a three hundred gram steak or something like that. But it's a if it's just if it's experiencing continual investment, then. One day, it, it, it is feasible that all our meat that we consume will be grown through this method and, and yeah, it immediately alleviates any of the ethical concerns. And I think it's brilliant. And then once they make it cost viable enough where it's maybe four or five times the price of a regular burger, that would be great for, for people who can afford that. And slowly, they just bring it down and eventually improve the processes. So... I think what you're doing is great. If, if you're uh, um, doing a PhD on on this, I think it's fantastic because there's it, also huge environmental impacts of um, the beef industry. So I just don't see a downside to this. Well, this is the whole thing that I have a beef with. I, uh, Ooh. yeah, I, I, I really, I, it's one of the three things in life. Uh, that I have. I you can't comment on okay. this cellular agriculture. It obviously sounds like extremely promising, but it's immediately, as soon as you think about that, you think, my God, what is this? Like a dollar a cell? It, it, it just sounds like, I can't imagine it ever getting to a point where it's like, and correct me if I'm wrong, Mr. PhD, but I can't ever imagine it being cheap enough to put in Maccas. Maybe. Robotics is advancing at a... But is it the robotics that is the matter? Is, is that the problem? Uh, look, yeah, I don't know the specifics of it. All I know is that it's a promising technology that is still a long way from being sort of widely economically viable mm. in a mass market, mm, mm, mm. but very promising. The, um, the thing that I can add to it, though, is, look, and this always goes to the root of vegans and the thing that I've figured out, and this is like Isaac Butterfield's big beef in life, right, is versing the vegans. And I think I do understand the psychology right. of why vegans are so defensive about their beliefs. And it is because it is such a commitment to do it. They are constantly getting attacked by Isaac Butterfield, namely, and, you know, it's not like they don't deserve it because there's like so many nutbags out there. But at the same time, there is a lot of vegans that are just quietly vegan and get on with their lives. In my experience, right? that is actually the vast majority of it. Yes, but it's just one of that one of those subsets of people that if you obsess over it, you can become extremely militant it's in like, your views. Exactly. It's like with any ideology where it has become a major facet of someone's identity and as a result they are extraordinarily defensive about it and judgmental because they do uh, feel like their identity may be under attack. I have to admit, though, it is quite hard to argue with the ethical argument. 
That's Other what than I'm like, saying. Oh, they're annoying. Well, yeah, yes, but it, you but are then- <laughs> causing needless suffering. Like I don't know. Like, <laughs> so which is very difficult. It took yeah. me a few years, but <laughs> eventually I yielded. I thought, well, you just there's no rational uh, argument against against veganism in terms of you know ethics. Now, like di- from what I've read, the dietary differences are are relatively minuscule if you are on top of all the vitamins. And that's a fair point that people will say like, oh, vegans need to take all these extra vitamins in order to be healthy. Well, yeah, they're not they're not choosing to uh, engage in a vegan diet just for health. They're choosing it most likely for ethics. Having said that, in comparison to the average Western diet, anyone who's just actually being actively conscious about what they're putting in their body, I think is going to be healthier. You're right. You're absolutely right. Look, the one thing that I will say about the diet thing is I think you're definitely, if if you are sitting there taking all your vitamins and supplements, which I just, Jesus, for the average human being, I mean, really, we're not going to be putting that much of an investment into it, right? Where I have noticed this, because this is the other thing, when people are always, vegans are always, isn't it? No, no, I don't think it's that. I thought that you'd just be one of those uh, old people that's about to die that has to have this many pills on Tuesday and, you know. Well, look, I've, I haven't been fully vegan, but I've been, I don't know, maybe 98% vegan for the last year or so now. I think you're in the same boat as me. It's just after a while you realise that the vegan diet is just conducive to working better. You feel cleaner. You realise that actually a lot of flavour comes from the vegetables and not the meat anyway. Yes, Exactly. So, but you do, but every now and then I've realized this, sometimes your body just craves a steak and then afterwards you have it and it just has this injection of energy where you go, and it's, Isaac's right. Like there's a lot of iron in it and you can feel it in your body. Yeah. 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 But I think that that's it, right? Like if you're just getting it down to about 95% vegetables, I mean, really, why, Look, and that's, what, it's what, fruitless to sort of argue with a vegan about the uh, health benefits of a non-vegan diet because most of them are not doing it for health reasons. They're doing it for the ethical, for reasons. ethical reasons. And that's fine because you're right. You cannot argue against the ethical reasons. And they're absolutely right for doing it and I commend them for it. However, as part of their identity, they have to rope this in and they refuse to yield on it and it is a real obvious psychological barrier that happens that I've noticed with when you're arguing with vegans, they cannot let this point go. They cannot let go of the point that cows are bad for the environment. Now, there's a lot of caveats with this and I have to say before I even go into it, I know the outcome of what's going to happen because I've argued with people this online a lot in my life and it goes the same way every time, which is they will regurgitate after listening to my response the exact thing that I'm saying is the predictable response they'll have and then I'll respond to it and then they will just respond with the predictable response despite me just saying this is exactly what they're going to say, right? So th- that's the classic thing in your in someone's mind when you can see it, when somebody is just, you know, repeating dogma And it's just like, no, but that's been addressed. So like, you know, I could still be wrong, but you would have to find another way of arguing that it's wrong. You know, I think that that's always what happens, right? So the usual construct of this argument is there is a way to graze 
cows that is environmentally, not just like sustainable, beneficial, expands environments. Uh, then they say there is no evidence for that. And then they always go back to cowspiracy. I have to then say cowspiracy is one of the things that the climate council, when they were talking to me a lot, uh, would always say the two things that used to shit them to no end was somebody ringing up and saying cowspiracy. Uh, you know, the two things of like someone ringing up and being like, uh, it was hot in the 60s, so climate change isn't happening. A hundred of those calls a day. And then another hundred calls a day being like, you're just talking about windmills when really it's actually cows that are destroying the planet and you don't have the guts to mention cows. You're, you're part of the problem every time. And these are climate scientists that are refugees from the Abbott government that had to set up their own independent commission to publish their own works. They are climate scientists, okay? And there are many of them working with climate economists and all of them say the same thing. No, it's the energy sector that you have to transform because the, there's all these misleading claims in Cowspiracy. It's a terrible documentary. It's so, it's because it's the same, comes from that same mindset of just like they're evil and I'm going to prove that they're evil. So there's all these like things that they say that are just wrong. Like I think they said at one point that 51% of emissions are from cows all up, all up 51% of emissions are from cows, despite the fact that about 15% of emissions are from agriculture. They're not responsible for all the emissions in the agricultural sector anyway. And then they say like, oh no, but it's also the transportation of the hay and all this kind of stuff, right? And it's just like, that still doesn't get you anything close to 50%. And if you electrify the grid, who cares if they're bringing hay via truck? It's electric, there's no emissions, right? Um, but Anyway, so that always happens. They always say something like that. Then they'll bring out some other paper that says something that, and I know a few of these papers that they use, they use something like grazed and confused. They'll use the papers that George Monboyne puts out. They'll always bring out these papers uh, and then say like, you know, what I'm talking, what I'm about to talk about is debunked. I will tell them, no, the thing that you are saying has been debunked many, many times. Go look at these things. They will refuse to look at it and then they will go back to just repeating again, cows are bad for the environment and they're clearing land. It's the same process over and over. So. Are they saying that cows in and of themselves are bad for the environment or all the processes surrounding agriculture that involves uh, cattle is what is causing the emissions and what is bad for the environment? Now, that is a good question. Because I think the evidence that they're pointing towards suggests that it is the practices around cows that are bad for the environment. I think, and sometimes there's other people that argue about this, there's this one dipshit that I need to get back to that isn't a vegan made it very obvious, uh, but most of the time they are, and it is because they are just trying to come up with another reason for this so that they, so it becomes cow is the enemy. And so I think that they use that evidence, but basically are just more or less suggesting that cows can't be farmed in a way that is beneficial to the environment. The counter argument, and this is something that people I think need to understand before we even get into it, right? Is that before human beings, there was way, way more biomass on the planet. Meaning there was many, many, many more animals than there currently is, way more. Uh, 
every time, as you read in Sapiens, human beings come to another land, continent, they wipe out the biggest animals immediately. Uh, you know, like when Aboriginals came here, they wiped out giant wombat, giant kangaroo. I do really like this, how white guilt has gotten to the point that there's now all these people being like, no, no, that doesn't, they might not have. And it's just like, dude, just for fuck's sake, like- they did, okay? Like, and then they managed the the environment very well, like, after that. But that was, like, so well coincided, right? Just and as then- a, As a very quick side note, you know, I, I uh, heard somewhere the other day that there's an overlap of about 11% in Aboriginal and Indian DNA. Yeah, and, and they theorize, it. Yeah, yeah, I mean, they look very, very similar, but- uh, Theorize that about five to six thousand years ago, there were a couple of tribes from India that managed to get to Australia and spread their genes quite wildly, as they do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the same thing's happening today, bro. Yeah, no, you know it's so it is, true. Man. It's dude, you guys are mad at babies. <laughs> You're so good at that. But yeah, <laughs> an interesting tidbit that I found out the other day. But it does look like that. Yeah, they really look, they does. Look, you could you could easily pass either way. Like I could the probably pass as there, Aboriginal, sure. and they could easily pass as Indian. Well, there's actually I can't remember which ones it is. It's ones kind of like from Papua New Guinea region, and they look like not yeah. Indian. They don't look Indian. Yeah, that's the interesting part, isn't it? Because Papua New Guinea, far more geographically closer to Australia. Big difference in the look of Papua New Guinea and, and even Torres Strait Islander compared to Aboriginal, Indians probably look the most like Australian Aboriginals. Mm. It, it, it definitely happened. I, but it must have happened from like Northern Territory or West Australia. Oh, yeah, look at it. It's closer there. It must have happened like that way. Because, yeah, when you get closer to Papua New Guinea, they look more like Papua New Guineans. Yeah, yeah. Anyway. Um. <laughs> But yeah, anyway, the point is, okay, so those massive grazers wiped out. Now all you have is kangaroos. That was a huge factor in the deserts expanding because this is something that they really don't understand and refuse to acknowledge, which is, okay, massive grasslands in the US. Why did they start turning into dust bowls? It's because there wasn't bison sitting there eating it fertilizing endlessly because they're just machines that all they do is eat and shit, right? That's all they do. Their shit is extremely beneficial when people always say, there's other ways to fertilize land. And it's like, okay, well, what, we're just going to pay, what, a work for the dole scheme to just sit out there at the peripheries of the desert, making sure that mushrooms are growing in the soil? Are they saying that, uh, are they are they denying the fact that, uh, Large animals like bison or cows are the best, uh, are very effective at fertilizing these plains and keeping them, whether arable or just rich in nutrients, or are they saying that it can be done without farming? Just, I guess and they're I saying know, it can be done without farming, but it's the same thing as this cellular meat. It's just like you, you can do it, but people aren't going to pay $2,000 a steak. You know, like the, it's the effective way because it's the way that grasslands evolved was to have some large uh, herding animal on it eating the grass because this is what happens when you don't eat the grass is that it grows too tall. All the other like smaller plant species in it die out. That makes the grassland less diverse. That less diversity uh, like starts to rescind. It's not getting fertilized anymore. So the desert starts expanding. 
Well, then over I can, the top of it. Well, I can probably understand where their argument is coming from then because it's still what they would call, uh, you know, taking advantage of animals for our benefit. Maybe. Even if it has the added consequence of environmental gain. Well, it's just ridiculous to me because it's like these ecosystems are retreating. Grasslands are retreating. Their argument that they always go to is that more land is cleared because of cows than any other animal, right? And, and, and like for any other activity, most land clearing is because of cows. And it's like no one is arguing that you should be clearing forests for grassland. You should be keeping the forests there and you should be moving the grasslands to where the desert once was. They say that that period is just, that, that theory is disproven. This is despite, look, Alan Savory, for instance, their big boogeyman in life, he's been doing it for 30 years. There are, they always say there's no studies. That's an absolute lie. They just haven't looked at it. It's very easy to Google. There's dozens and dozens of peer reviewed studies, studies from university studies, including thousands of ranches. Uh, case study after case study of all these farmers just saying like, I was about to go bankrupt. Look at my farm now. They always dismiss this as well. They're just like, well, oh, you're using a photo. That doesn't prove anything. This peer reviewed report that I have proves things. But it's like, okay, the land was desert 10 years ago and now it's lush grassland with a flowing river. And you're saying that's no evidence at all despite the fact that there are a bunch of peer-reviewed studies on this that say that, yeah, this is expanding grassland. This is making the area more biodiverse. This is making uh, biodiversity come back to the grasslands, as in not just cows. This is the other thing that's insane about it. They're saying that you're like wiping out other species for it. On the contrary, they are adding many, many more species and in larger quantities. This is what the studies are saying. In response, they point to things like grazed and confused. Grazed and confused sits there and says on whole, and I've read the whole study. So every time they always just say, you haven't read it. It's like, I know what you've done. You've watched the YouTube video that paraphrased what they were saying and paraphrased it poorly. I read the report, all 127 pages of it. There was many things that were glaringly, you know, not wrong with it, but it's just like, it's not saying what they're saying it's saying. They're saying it's like cows are inextricably bad for the environment. And this idea that them fertilizing the land, them, uh, you know, eating the grass so it scares and then grows back faster, uh, that they're like aerating it with their hooves, because that's the other thing. You can see this as well. This is a very obvious thing that happens. When you look at desert land, it's very compact. And that's because when water goes into it, the water just runs right off it because the land is just, there's nothing, there's no, it's not tilted, you know? It's okay. just kind of like almost rock and sand. Forgive my complete ignorance here, but aren't cows a relatively new species in the history of biodiversity on the planet and they sort of evolved due to human interference? Well- Yes and no, as in like, okay, the, the very specific breeds that we have now are like new, but that's kind of like dogs are new, but they're still from wolves. Right, okay. Right? So okay. it's the same so thing as like whether it's a cow or a bison, okay, they'd, they'd have the same Same thing. thing. It's okay. just a, a, a herding animal that and, grazes. And, and you're saying it's, you solve 
you solve multiple problems by implementing holistic grazing because not only are you regenerating the environment, you are also making it cost viable because there's huge profits in cattle farming. Huge profits in cattle farming. It's also, yeah, regenerating the environment. And the vegans aren't saying that they're not arguing on the ethical point of, hey, look, it's still it's still uh, taking advantage of species that can feel pain. Pain They're saying that, no, it doesn't actually have a benefit on the environment. Yes, which is my contention. You can argue that it is ethically wrong to eat meat and you will win that argument. You will not win the argument that farming, cattle farming, all types of farming can improve the environment. I'm not even talking about like uh, sustainably do it, right? I'm talking about actually expanding the environment, i.e. increasing the biodiversity, increasing the water retention of it. A really good example of this, there was a study that I was reading about it that was talking about that land thing with the desert, right? What happens is because their hooves are constantly digging this land up, uh, if you're moving them in a very planned way, so that you're giving this time, like the areas behind it rest and then like uh, all the shit that's there, beetles come along and then mushrooms grow out of it and then birds come along and eat those beetles. And, you know, that's what is improving the environment because it's like the the cleanup crew that comes after the herders do that Mm. that's also helping this out, right? Like that's how the ecosystem has evolved to to work, right? Um, When you're doing that in a desert, when it rains, 80% of the water is runoff. So, like, there's no – none of the water, like, penetrates into the soil. It all just goes – that's why you get floods in the desert. And it goes into just, like, the, a pool and then you get these huge lakes in the middle of the desert, right? Because it, none of the water is staying in the land. It's just running off like a slippery dip. Cows, because they're digging up the land and they're shitting on it and they're fertilizing and it's becoming better in quality all the time because it's being fertilized um, – the retention after maybe eight years goes from uh, 80% of water becoming runoff to 50% of water coming runoff. So instead of 20% of water staying in the soil, it's 50% of water staying in the soil. That is music to any ecosystem's ears. It's music to farmers' ears. It's music to everyone's ears because that means that you have drought-proof land essentially. Like when it doesn't rain for a year, there's still moisture in the soil. Things are still growing. As a result of that, over time, you start having trees growing around it and then clouds move along with trees. And then you start getting these kind of like in the middle of deserts, more rain happening in these large ranches that are happening. Like a a lot of things start moving because you have these large herding animals that have been taken off the land uh, whether it was like 40,000 years ago, whether it was in the US, them just shooting all the bison just as sport. And so now there's just no bison there. And so the deserts have been expanding as a result of that. If you start putting cows there in a way that is like, okay, this area has long grass, we'll put them in this paddock and we'll make them eat for this amount of time and then we'll move them on because they would have eaten all of that and we'll leave that for like six months and then we'll come back again. Oh, and this is the other thing as well, when they're always saying that like it's bad for wildlife and things, say that kangaroos came along. This is something that I'll get into in a second, but kangaroos come into a paddock next to it 
and they eat some of the grass and stuff. Part of the holistic management thing is like, okay, well, then that grass has been fertilized. We don't need to touch that grass. We'll move them to another paddock. It's about moving the cows along with the rhythm of nature so that you're just kind of doing what happens naturally, but on steroids. You're just following the rhythms of nature, but you're just doing it in a way that's guided as opposed to random Mm. because random takes the ecosystem a long time to do it. And the other thing is once the ecosystem dies, this is the same thing that's happened in the areas that I'm talking about that have been logged with koala habitat, right? Once those trees are gone and you have all of this runoff happening and then you have all these introduced weeds coming in, those introduced weeds take the places of the saplings that would have otherwise grown. So the, the, the ecosystem is permanently changed because of the logging. This is the same thing. Like when they're always just saying like, you should leave all these, you know, environments to just naturally act the way that they should act. No environment in the world, even in fucking North Sentinel Island isn't touched by human beings now. Like they've all been altered by human beings. Like human beings, this is the whole thing. Like everyone understands this about when Aboriginal started like managing the land in Australia. It actually started improving the ecosystems of this land. It was because they were just following the natural rhythms of it and speeding it along. They were just kind of guiding how the ecosystem should naturally function. So don't give me this shit of just like, you just leave it to its own devices. If you leave it to its own devices, it turns into desert and it just grows a bunch of fucking lantana over it. You know, it's just like, it's too far gone for that shit. Human beings need to be involved in these things and they need to be using the animals that were designed for this. When they say things like cows aren't introduced to Australia, and this is such a dumb argument that I've heard all the time of just like, oh, they're they're not uh, designed for natural, uh, for native grasses. And it's like, dude, there's a thousand native grasses, first off, which fucking species are you talking about? I'm sure there's probably some alpine grasses that you should not be putting cows on. And I am not arguing that cows should be on environments that don't need cows. But there are environments that need cows or could greatly benefit from cows. And these are the ones that used to be grazed by things like giant wombats and giant kangaroos. And and so, and, and we have, and this is just a lie as well, because there's a lot of evidence to show that you can be farming cows on native grasslands and it can be improving native grasslands because it's not that different. Your argument is essentially saying that we shouldn't be eating acai bowls because we didn't grow up in fucking Peru or wherever they're from, right? Like you're still a human being, like you're still close enough to it. Grass is still grass. There's obviously some species of grass that aren't going to benefit from it, but a lot of species of grass benefit from something grazing it. So you just put those things on it. And so like, and and it's, it's a, it's a thing in biology that's called plugging, right? Which is just like, yes, we have wiped out a lot of species from planet earth. What you have to do as a result of that is find a species that sort of matches the function that it is playing in that environment. Otherwise, the environment starts to suffer. So if you had giant wombats and you don't have giant wombats now, you know what's fairly close to that? A cow. In fact, cows are probably better than even like if you started farming giant wombats because they have the hooves and everything like that. They're just a better version of that. And if you're managing them properly and making sure that there's the right amount of cows on the land doing this stuff, they're going to be 
improving these environments. This is what the science tells us. The the studies that they always use, they always bring up the cowspiracy thing. They always refer to George Monbet. George Monbet, he points to two studies. Both of them weren't even talking about holistic grazing, I don't think, from memory. But they've both been very heavily criticized in the scientific community for using all these bullshit terms and like things that just weren't even addressing holistic grazing to begin with. When it comes to grazing confused, their whole argument is like grazing in general is bad for the environment. And if we continue down the same path that we're going now, it will lead to catastrophic climate change. And it's like, yeah, because currently now they're clearing the Brazilian rainforest to put cows on it. No, holistic grazing is arguing the exact opposite of doing that. You should not be doing that. It's also arguing, uh, you know, soil retention is, uh, it says like, you know, because the whole thing is like good soil becomes a carbon sink, right? Like good quality soil with all the microbes in it starts storing carbon. They say that the things of Alan Savory, the the uh, the measurements of Alan Savory are overstated. It seems like they're overstated because, We've got these other uh, peer-reviewed studies that say that it can't retain as much carbon as Alan Savory is saying. But Alan Savory is measuring, this is, this is how much cows can improve the soil, right? Like most of these other studies are studying 30 centimetres below ground level. Alan Savory is measuring a metre down. So a metre of soil is being impacted as opposed to 30 centimetres, which is what's normally impacted with normal grazing of just leaving cows in a paddock and until the paddock fucking dies and then you move on to the next thing. Because again, if you're leaving cows in a paddock to just eat over and over again, that's not naturally what they're doing. They're naturally just moving along and munching grasses and that's why the grasses keep expanding. So you have to mimic that. You have to mimic them moving. So there's so many things that they're saying that always, and I think it all just stems down to this one thing, which is I'm a vegan and uh, I need to defend that point. And it's like, yes, defend it, but defend it on the ethical grounds. Don't defend it on this thing of just like cows generally blanket evil. Because the graze and confused thing that you're always pointing to is talking about agricultural methods in general. Now it even talks about that in the first few pages. It's just like, look, it's really hard for us to even define what grazing is. So we had to make such like a general interpretation of what grazing methods are. We're talking about grazing methods across the planet as they are, not the worst. It's it's like, it's such a stupid thing. It's like, you know what it is really? It's like looking at general education standards across the planet. So you'd be including like all of Africa, all of India, you know, all these poor countries, and then just being like, all right, well, it's not working that well. And it's like, well, there's also the education system of Finland and Norway that's doing like fucking exceptionally well, but because it's being averaged out, it looks like Finland and Norway are doing shit. And then just kind of concluding, oh, well, like the education system isn't working. Let's just cut education entirely. Has holistic grazing been implemented on mass anywhere? Or is it just been, well, uh, just, just been for singular studies? 2017? 16 million hectares worldwide were being holistically managed. Now, this is the whole point. When I say holistic management, this is different to holistic grazing. Holistic grazing is one of the tools of holistic management, which is the thing that Alan Savory is pushing and his institution is pushing, which is you want your land 
to mimic the biorhythms of nature. And so if you have a bank that is near a river, that bank should have trees planted on it. So he plants trees on it. And if there's an area that is being continually grazed by another animal, he doesn't put cows on it. And if there's an area that's more conducive for crop yielding, he puts crops on that. Like it's 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 about making the farm mimic nature. So it's it's happening. This was in 2017. There was 16 million hectares. God knows how many that's happening now because this is the amazing thing. It actually, the tide is turning because it's just becoming undeniable. There's so many farmers that are just reporting the same things over and over again of just like, look, my land was desert. Now here's a photograph of my land and here's the line between my neighbor and then the neighbor's line is desert and then theirs is just green pasture land over and over again. Just countless case studies of this happening. So many science reports coming out being like, yeah, fuck, this is actually sinking carbon. It is slowly expanding, but there's two problems to it. One of them is obviously that a lot of like farmers just don't want to learn a new way because everybody's just setting their old habits. And then there's also the thing of like, it's obviously a lot easier if you're an industrial farmer to just clear something and be like, yeah, just eat that shit. And oh, okay, now the soil's fucked again. Okay, we'll just f- fucking clear this land and then you can eat that soil. You know, that's the easy way out. So there's that's the hurdle that they're experiencing on that side. And then the other hurdle that they're experiencing on the other side is just this relentless campaign to try and discredit it because they've put in their heads that cows are bad for the environment and they need that to be real in their heads. And it's just like, just take that away, especially when, even if you're right, okay, let's just assume for a second that the vegans are right And I highly, highly disagree with everything they're saying because the reports that they even show me aren't selling me what they're saying. As I've said before, they're talking about generally grazing. They're never talking about Alex. Where are you having these arguments online? Yeah, I'm having it online. I just, I I read a lot of the arguments and the counter arguments because I'm very interested in it because really what we're talking about is fascinating. It's just like we're terror, it's terraforming the planet. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's such an epic idea. Like it's just like, and it's so optimistic as well. You're restoring environments to what they once were. Um, and like, you know, in the Australian equivalent, just as another little side note while I'm just here, they say like, oh, why is that happening if there's kangaroos that are eating it? It's first like, look, they're not, a kangaroo, I think eats about 700 grams of food a day. A cow eats 18 grams, you know, like, a, and, and also uh-huh. a kangaroo, uh, 18 kilos. Oh, okay. They eat 18 kilos. Uh, Whoa. There's a difference. Right, like there's, there's, they they are an eating machine. The other thing is what kangaroos about, okay. don't just eat grass; they oh. eat like berries and leaves. I've and- heard that cows require a lot of uh, water. Now it's not just for them to drink, but it's to grow the crops and things like that that they consume. Well, this is Does the whole this, thing. So this holistic grazing kind of just allows that to occur naturally. Allows it to occur naturally because this is again, it's a science, right? Like this is a this is a management system that has been implemented across the world and gets the same results everywhere. First of all, when it comes to feeding the animals hay, you're not feeding the animals hay on holistic management. You're making, you're putting enough cows on it so that it can transform the environment for them to eat it, right? So like if the land that they're on can sustain one cow, they put one cow on there. And then when the land gets a little bit better, they put two cows on there. Like they just keep building so, it up with the time. So theoretically, even if it wasn't a farm, if you just sort of bought a patch of land somewhere out in the country, 
just buying how and do this yourself. Yeah. I mean, people do. I mean, like I've talked to someone else as well. This is the other thing that's amazing. Like none of these people actually ever talk to anyone that's implementing these things. They just keep regurgitating a couple of basic principles that they learned in like biology or something, which is just like, yeah, it's a general <laughs> principle, but it's like things get a lot more complicated and nuanced when you start doing things in different ways, right? But I've talked to one of them and he does that. He has, he was a scientist in Australia and he has made, he decided to buy a farm so that he could make it a sustainable farm. And he just sits there and uses it as essentially a lab and then goes around the country and teaches other farmers, these are the methods that you should be implementing, you know? So- That's cool. It's really cool. It's really cool. Um, and, you know, I think he's a little more knowledgeable than these cunts that are just like, you should watch this eight minute YouTube video that I saw that misquotes a report uh, that isn't talking about the thing I'm talking about. Um, but yeah, yeah. So like, it's just like, look, those animals are capable of eating. They All they do is graze. That's why they can be a far superior animal because again, a kangaroo is not a grazing animal. It's sort of like a partially grazing animal. A cow is just a grazing animal. Um, yeah. So anyway, sorry, when it comes to the food, the food isn't a problem because they're making sure that there is enough food for the cow to just eat that. And they're not putting in hay. The second point is, yeah. Okay. They need water on these arid lands. Obviously like every animal needs it. I think when I was reading this one report, it was saying, look at how much more efficient it is at regenerating land that is semi-arid because this is where you want cows to be, semi-arid land, that kind of like scraggly bush that's sort of half sand, half, you know, tufts of grass. Usually you would need one cow every 12 acres. Uh, sorry, sorry, I think you need, uh, yeah, one cow every 12 acres on that land. Uh that means that they need, I think, about half a litre of water per acre to be doing that. This is where it starts getting technical. So I think that they need something like, oh, sorry, sorry, a litre. No, yeah, yeah. So it works out to be about five litres per acre that a cow needs to sustain itself on that land in return, what do you get? As we were saying before, you get a 30% increase in water retention on the land. That is infinitely a better return on investment than the five liters that you're giving the cow to just graze it for that time. We're talking about all of that water soaking into the land and staying there. And as you can see with all of the lands, this is amazing as well. You see photographs of land that is holistically managed. Five liters to, a day? How much? Yeah, five liters a day. Okay. Um, uh, per acre, I think it works out to be. Uh, you see that water next to, uh, and this is actually something that Alan Savory is just like, you can come and take photographs of it on my property. His property has a flowing stream, middle of a drought, next door's river, and it's the same river, dry, dry riverbed, just sand. Everything is sand. On his, still green lush land, still running water during a drought. It's because there is still moisture in the soil right. that is running into the river and keeping it going. Well, um, if farmers are sort of witnessing the 
clear benefits of these these practices? How much power do the vegans online actually have or is it just a personal gripe you have with them? I think that it is something that is like, look, you could be sitting there keeping your belief going that, uh, you know, these animals are terrible for the environment as opposed to thinking of them like they are a hammer. It's like, yeah, hammers build houses, but you can also murder someone with them. And I know that you're like, you can sit there and just like, it's an, ex- it's an exploitation thing. But you can argue, you can still argue that it is ethically wrong to eat meat, but you should not be arguing blanketly that cows are an evil on this planet that cannot be used to improve the, like the, the ecosystems of this thing, especially because this is the other thing that always happens when you think about it, right? Like it's like, there's other ways to fertilize the soil. How expensive would that be? Even like the regeneration of deserts, they're always pointing to like uh, Israel, for instance, right? And they're saying like, oh, they're putting in all these desert trees. They require 37 litres of water per acre as opposed to the cow that requires five. Huge reduction in water use here, right? Like it's just you can use these animals to improve environments because they are part of nature. You just have to, you know, do something that is closer to what nature is, right? Mm. So anyway, all I'm saying is that like if you want to, if if you actually genuinely care about fighting climate change, increasing biodiversity, increasing ecosystems, that's what you should be arguing for, especially because there is the economic incentive behind it. Yes, there are other ways to fertilize grasslands. They're also way more labor intensive and way more expensive and require way more manpower. This almost does its job by itself. It's it's almost as natural as nature itself. This is a way, and there's also the economic incentive behind it because people make money out of it. So it's just like, okay, what's an easier thing to do? Go to a farmer and say, you're evil and like everything that you've ever done in your life is causing climate change and you're wrong or saying, hey, do you want to make more money? Farm this way. What's an easier battle to win? Especially when it's the right battle. Yeah, like I said, I don't know the specifics about these uh, varying practices. Uh, I'd imagine there would there could be some degree of cognitive dissonance in not being able to adapt to new clear evidence that goes against their preconceived idea that farming is just downright bad in all instances mm. because they are uh, all a large part of the vegan ideology is also against the exploitation of animals and if what you're arguing for, which is, hey, it's also economically viable, then they immediately are going to be against that because it's an exploitation of said animal. But if True. what I'm understanding is that you're also arguing it doesn't even need to be for any economic incentive. You can just put a bunch of cows on sort of scrubby, sparse grassland and over a period of time they will regenerate that. Well, that sounds that sounds beneficial all round, I don't see any downside to that at, at all. You're not you're not exploiting the the cow. Then you're not even gonna, I don't know, let it die naturally whenever it dies of old age. But uh, if you're not actually farming it, what's the? It, then you could argue, well, the, there's an ethical. It's an ethical positive to 
allow them to graze on that particularly Definitely. sparse area of land. Hugely, because it's also just like, okay, maybe you are sacrificing the cows, but think about all the other native animals that you're bringing back to those lands that were once desert. Animals, there's a reason there's fuck all animals in the desert. They don't like living there. They like living in forests and grassland. There's more biodiversity in forests, obviously, but then there's more biodiversity in grasslands than there is in deserts. So what about all those animals? A lot of those animals are going extinct that could be saved as a result of this, if you want to even argue it in terms of like an animal ethical view, right? But then the other thing is, I think you're just muddying your argument. I think it's harder, first off, to, as soon as you bring in climate change, you've already turned off 30% of the population because they're just going to say it's fake and bullshit or whatever. If you're just narrowing your argument to, these are all the ethical reasons for why you shouldn't be eating meat, it's better for you anyway. I think like as, as soon as you start scattering shots and saying, it's like what we talk about with the Greens. The Greens, I think, would still be expanding to this day if their only thing was we're here for the environment. But as soon as they put in the SJW shit and stuff like that, just turned everyone off. So I think it's the same thing with it. If you're going to argue something, just go on your one bullet, you know, and the thing that you can't be argued against. Like the first thing that you heard when you... Uh, when, when, when the vegan stuff came out, you were just like, yeah, it's, it's so hard to argue against their points of just like, it's, it's cruel. You know, like it's, there's no real counter argument to it. It's just so intrinsically right. And I think that this is the same thing when it comes to the cow argument. It's like, you can argue that like in current practice, the way that it's currently being practiced, this is terrible for the environment. You can argue that, but get more specific and say that there are ways to not even sustainably do it, to improve it. Because that's like, or just don't argue about climate change at all because you clearly don't give a shit about it. Like you don't want solutions to it. You just want to prove that like being vegan is good. I think that's the way to think about it, right? Like it's, it's, it's just like it helps you as well in your crusade against stopping people from eating meat. The most, the way that you get that to happen most of the time, I think anyway, you photograph like pigs in a fucking pig factory and then people just think, yeah, no, nah, I can't do that. I don't think you've yeah, convinced many people like I'm going to stop eating cows because it's bad for the environment. I no, don't think many people stop for that anyway. So you're just tacking that on needlessly. Yeah, the emotional argument of uh, seeing some of those photographs and, and videos of factory farming I think is far more compelling than than a scientific argument that talks about uh, how much cattle grazing is uh, – Contributing to emissions yeah. it doesn't really hit the emotions the same way. No, not at all. Mm. And then it immediately just becomes this big, huge global problem where you just think, oh, well, we're all fucked anyway. I may as well just have a steak. You're not really offering any, like how viable is it to just say, let's stop eating meat? Oh, okay. Well, every year the amount of meat consumption globally rapidly increases. So you're really helping out with that one. Yeah, but curb it in a way that is sustainable. Well, with that one, sure. Like in West, it's it's a very niche Western thing at the moment. What Ve- veganism? Isn't it? Yeah, I'm I sure. Mean, I'm sure. Can you that imagine going to Pakistan and saying yeah. you should be 
eating less meat. Right, yeah. The the argument there might actually have to be, well, first of all, let's get the economic conditions up to a standard where there is a burgeoning middle class that can afford to go vegan. Even and think to even about think it. about it, yeah. It's just it's not going to work. Having said that, I've also seen arguments from people who are actually like not well off in the subcontinent saying it's quite uh it's almost borderline racist to assume that uh, people who are poorer in the subcontinent don't have the capacity to to be vegan. Like they can still be vegan. That's just not. In fact, it'd probably be a lot easier yeah, and cheaper. It's probably easier, actually. So, but that's the whole thing. That's what I'm saying. Like it's such a cultural thing in Pakistan. It's like you know what happened when I because they just kept feeding us meat and just like meat cooked in animal fat, and so two and I were just like, can we just have a meal that is vegetable? And we were with Ali's like uncles and stuff. And they just went like, and then Ali started laughing. And then they just said, and then I said, what are they laughing about? And they said, he thinks you're homosexual. He thinks I'm gay. Because I didn't well, want to eat what? fucking meat. There'd be some people, there'd be some like blokey blokes here that would probably have a similar kind of response. Let's be honest. Yeah, definitely. But that's a cultural thing. You want a salad? What are you, gay? Yeah, I mean, look. Salad's kind of gay. Let's it is pretty gay. I'm um, basically vegan. Salads are pretty gay. Yeah, it is. It's, it's, it's they've got a point. Get yourself the McPlant. <laughs> it's not even vegan. It's you got to ask for the specific vegan McPlant. No. Yeah. Jesus Christ. One of the one of Hungry Jack's Rebel Whopper. That one's vegan. There's you know good, what? I there's prefer good the vegan Rebel Whopper. Yeah, it actually tastes tastes. Dude, Lord of the Fries, all the vegan. I know it's such a standard vegan thing to say, but it's like the, vegan food actually tastes pretty good. Mm. I don't know what this whole oh, oh it's disgusting. Well, yeah, because you're eating the wrong foods. Like it actually, if you eat the what right is, ones, it yeah, because they're well. just they're the exact opposite, aren't they? It's just everything that they eat is just like a pork chop, potatoes, peas. Yeah, like then you actually start to realize, well, all of that stuff actually tastes terrible. It's the sauce that tastes good. Yeah. Steak it is. by itself doesn't taste good. No. You need it's the sauce with it that makes it taste good. Yeah. Yeah. Every time. What like raw like you know steamed chicken that doesn't that tastes like crap. You need to <laughs> put some sauce on it or put it with something to actually make it taste good. No, you definitely you definitely onto something. I think that's these are the arguments that you should be making vegans. That's what I'm saying. It's just like it doesn't ta- it tastes better. It's better for you and it's really fucking mean putting cramming pigs in cages that they can't move around in and hearing day in, day out other pigs being slaughtered. You know, like <laughs> that's what you should be arguing. Yeah, fair. I'd have to look into all of this other stuff and I probably won't. So No, but just don't worry about it. <laughs> you don't should. have to. All you should be saying anytime you ever hear anyone say this is just I, I want this to be taken out of the lexicon that like cows are destroying the environment. Say cows are currently destroying the environment, but they could be enhancing the environment and are. But it's just, you know, 16 million hectares across the planet is nothing. <laughs> Yeah, and then the other uh, argument could be, well, look, there's billions of cows currently in uh, cattle farming. What do you want to do with them? You just want to kill them all? Like if they, if, if let's say is cattle that the farming argument? becomes yeah. obsolete, 
in 10 years, which it never will, but let's just say hypothetically, well, he's like billions of cows. What are you going to do? Yeah. What, you, so what the fuck is the ethical argument here? He's just slaughtering them all for no benefit. Even that grazed and confused report, this is the phenomenal thing. They were saying that uh, it's bad for the environment and damaging it. And then it says later on, however, getting rid of all the cows off this land would probably be worse for the environment than keeping them on it. So even they're admitting mm. that it's like probably a bad idea to do it. They're Essentially, they're just exactly what – it's just like, yes, farming in its current form on an industrial scale is terrible for the environment. Yes. So say hypothetically you had an acreage somewhere not too far from a major city in Australia. Could you just keep a cow as a pet and it would actually benefit the environment? Yeah. If you could afford all the water and upkeep and <laughs> Look, I would argue that you should probably have more than one cow because they're a very social animal, but yes. Uh, you it wouldn't actually – because this is the whole thing. Holistic management is not that hard. It takes like a little bit of getting used to, but they teach it to a bunch of illiterates in Africa how to do it. Uh-huh. It's pretty straightforward. And so, yes, you could. If you had like a small acreage though, it's probably not a good idea to put a cow on it because it's tiny. Like you would probably be putting some goats on it, but you can do the same thing. Yeah. Okay. Alpacas, whatever. Mm. Mm. It's a nice idea. I do yeah, want to yeah. one day get to the point that where I can cool. buy a large farm and then just pay some uni grad to sit there and just experiment on it all day. Probably at that point now. Well, yeah, probably. He shows you doing. Yeah. I could actually. Yeah. Your, Holy shit, your, I could do that. How's yeah. your house hunting going? Terribly. This is my problem. Everybody has to help me out immediately. Why is there so few architecturally designed houses? I can't go back. You know what? I stayed in one when I was in town in Townsville, and this is the wankiest thing that you'll ever hear anyone say. But it just feels nicer in there. You sleep better. You do. It was like a converted church. Mm. So it was like an old hundred-year-old building, but they made it all modern and like well-designed within. That was incredible. And you build it yourself. Because it takes so long. I just wanted to be there. But then I've been looking for like two years. So, <laughs> But it is amazing. Like the, the shape of a house and the change in it is phenomenal. Like your apartment is very similar to my office apartment, right? But yours is just so much better. It's so much better. You've just, just designed it well. Yeah. It was what you put in it, not the necessarily the architectural design on it. Well, the interior design helps as well, but don't you reckon you know those you ever seen any of those like grand designs things and then it's just got those weird yeah, spiral stairs yeah, and yeah. incredible. You'd want to live in one, right? Maybe. I haven't really thought of that. Just no. Maybe I'm, I don't know, I'm inclined to say I want a simple house, maybe with some little ostentatious features, but uh, I wouldn't want to live in some weirdly designed thing for the sake of it. <laughs> just want something practical. If, it's, if it does the job... And it's affordable. That'll do me. And then, and then the interior design, what the, the mementos you put into it, and what you then make out of it is is 
what I would place more significance on, I think. So theoretically, you buying some McMansion in Hurstville is fine. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So it's not it's not that important to you. What about a car? No. Point A to point B. Yeah, I mean, I, I like a few. In fact, I'm probably going to get a new car soon-ish. Um, but ultimately, point A to point B. I don't use my car much. I don't need anything fancy. I'm not a rev head, but yeah, there's some nice features. And if it can, if it has the capacity to go somewhat off road, I'm not, I don't need the, like a big. Um, four-wheel drive, but uh, if there ever is the time where I need to go to a campsite or something, don't want a little little hatchback that can't get there. Okay. but uh, So it still just goes down to practicality though. Yeah, yeah. You don't want like anything wanky. Of, no, yeah, it's just practicality for me. So there's nothing that you kind of indulge in? No. Nothing. Um, well, uh, Respect, man. No, well, I haven't really thought about it at length. Maybe when I am ever looking for a house, I'll change my mind. But um, I don't think so. Just practicality. And then once it becomes practical, practical, whatever I can afford, that also adds to the aesthetic beauty of it. Well, obviously, like you've got no choice if you can't afford it. But in a... Bizarro world where you have a hundred million dollars in the bank. Uh huh. You're not getting some kind of like waterfront Balmain property with six bedrooms well, converted yeah, from a factory. About a hundred million. Even then, I'd probably think about all right. What can I do with all the extra space? How can I convert it into something that is related to the business, or I don't know, have a half comedy room in there, half Damn. residential area, but. Uh, Nah, I don't know. That doesn't really compel me that much. Really? Okay. okay. I don't know, but if, again, if you, I if you really had a hundred million dollars, so you wouldn't get a Lambo or something. Because you got a hundred million, yeah, you could sort of take maybe four or five million and say, all right, that's just my luxury spending. Yeah. But then the rest of it, I'd think about, well, how can I actually use this to be a benefit? Well, long-term, that's what I'm saying, long-term. right? Like, because really. Five million, you can buy a lot of Ferraris with that. And it's mm. nothing. It's 5%. Mm. Yeah. It's 5% of your income. So, like, usually how everybody else is just, I don't know, what, 90% of their income goes into the basics? If 5% of your, if 5% of your income is just going into frivolous shit and you still have 95% of your money left, it's a different world. And and 100 million is not even that much in today's standards of wealth. No. You know, there's had something a the, uh, couple of weeks ago I heard on a podcast where uh, the richest billionaires in America make in a day what some of the most famous Hollywood actors make in a year. Or That's it might right. have even been an hour. Yeah. I can't remember if it was an hour. I don't – it surely couldn't have been an hour because some of the – Hollywood actors would make 50 to 100 million a year. Mm. And they were saying Jeff Bezos makes that in a very short time frame. I think it was a day. Mm. May have even been less. Mm. Mm. Which is just. 
it's so weird. It's obscene it's just, because it's obscene. most people would think about fifty million a year and be gobsmacked at the just the potential of what you do with that. And most of these people, they just they incur so many costs in their opulent lifestyle that the actual money coming back to them virtually isn't even that much because they've got private jets, they've got to support staff, they've got full-time multiple chefs, they've got, you know, carers and everything to the point where that $50 million can actually get eaten into quite substantially. Mm. Like how much are they actually saving? I mean, you know, who saves? Because the financial incentives are not to save money because of inflation anyway, so... Financial incentives are definitely not to do, but especially when you're at that level. All all you're really trying to do at that level is just to keep expanding. Savings is a very lower class thing. Rich people, it shouldn't I be. don't. It shouldn't be. It shouldn't be. But well, actually, maybe it should be because that's the whole point of capitalism, right? It's kind of just like give me more avenues of money. That's what I should be spending right, my money right. on. I'm not spending it on saving money. It's just like, I've got a hundred million dollars. Well, how much do I need to eat? Like 20 bucks a meal if I'm taking Uber Eats, you know? So right. what do I need to do with the rest of it? The rest of it is, oh, okay, I'll just make more money with the money. That's the whole point <laughs> about it. It's like actually yeah. not, th- I mean, okay, if you get into like the elite financial genius realm, but once you're in that kind of tier of just having excess money, it's not a financially genius move to enhance that money. It's quite easy to do. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's In fact, you should be criticized if you lose money at that level. And how do you lose money if you have 10 million dollars of capital and you lose that money? Wow, you are a fucker. Like it's one thing You're a fucker. It's one thing to have a minimum wage job and then go down to welfare status. But to go from $10 million to bankrupt, you dramatic, like the level of fuck up there. Huge. That does not belong in the, in the society. No. That is such an abysmal failure. Huge. You should be so ashamed if you had $10 million <laughs> and you then became bankrupt. Like the, I just can't even comprehend how someone can go bankrupt after having $10 million and I'm talking just free capital sitting there, no debts. Like that is, that's an obscene amount of waste. It's always so, that is just, it's infuriating. And it it happens so often that celebrities go bankrupt. I mean, because I understand, particularly with entertainers, they haven't garnered their wealth through, I guess, business-oriented means. They've just had an artistic service or product that has then been sort of micromanaged by an entrepreneurial person more likely than not and sort of commodified and sold on a mass market. So that I guess they don't necessarily have that kind of either expansion, expansionary financial mentality or um, abstemious financial mentality. So it makes sense to some degree, but man, that, it's just so embarrassing if you've had that much wealth and lost it. <laughs> Don't you think? Of course like, it's it is. Just, okay, it's one thing to have, even if you go from like having two houses down to zero, all right, you fucked up, you're a gambling addict or whatever, still pretty bad, mm. still quite bad. Mm, mm, but to mm, go mm. from $10, $10 million 
to bankrupt. It's, it's what the fuck is wrong with you, man? Like, what? How did you do that? I don't fucking know. Just you know what else it, is just well? end it. Because this is you, like that's you the should. one situation where I'm like, bro, like the world doesn't need you. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Especially because if you put what, like if you put. Just put a it in million dollars in, yeah, in an index like, yeah, fund. What are you any, getting? A return of like eighty thousand a year? Yeah, probably. Like you just need to just do a certain proportion of that. You can even be completely wasteful with nine million of it. Nuts! It's just horrendous. I know. Yeah, if you put a million dollars into an index fund, you'd be set for life. Yep. For life, you wouldn't have to lift a finger. You just pretend that you wasted that just, other just million dollars. Buy, like you did a the business, other. buy a small business that's profitable. Yeah, you're right. You could even do that. Just overpay a small business. Use two, even if you use two million of that, and then you know it's going to get a return of a hundred grand a year or something. And you're fine. <laughs> like you don't do anything. Just pay everyone else. So then you just reap the profit. Like you can do that. Like that's the level of just just lack of. Action that you need to incur to actually just forever uh, have uh, passive income, and you still <laughs> went bankrupt. It, the Ooh. only the only way to Ooh. that happened is uh, it's it's always just from like drugs and decadence, isn't it? Like yeah, they, they yeah, weren't yeah. investing. Pure they can hedonism. say that it was like bad investments, but they clearly just weren't focusing on the investment no. at all. Like if you just looked at it and thought, oh, "I've lost twenty five percent of my money. I should probably be doing something different." In this, you know, so they're not. Yeah, their lifestyle is just so complete uh, hedonist, egregiously opulent. Yeah, yeah, it's gross. When you get to, because you think that is like, I guess, a more working and middle class mentality of like, all right, the way to just move up on the social mobility ladder is to just be very uh, frugal and to invest wisely and be shrewd with your money and not waste a lot. But then you get to the elite levels of. Just pure financial decadence, where they're just living off either a trust fund or they have sold a business and just have just exorbitant amounts of wealth, where they can just leave it in some sort of profitable asset and then just like live off the profits of that, live off the like gains of that. And then the lifestyle is basically the same as like someone on welfare, where it's just like constantly drinking, mm. constantly doing drugs fucking everyone having a bunch of bastard children <laughs> except you just control society like it's just it goes in a full circle like the behaviors <laughs> doesn't it nuts that's dude you're right you're right. oh my god yeah it is it is the same experiences i know people like that as well it's like the, uh, well, the, the, Ali's the friends. amazing. <laughs> no, well, no, they're so rich you can't. That's the whole thing. They, they're at that level where it's like, I mean, again, like if you if you're making a, a building, a, you know, a skyscraper in Dubai, it lost money. They're nowhere near bankrupt. So if Jeff Bezos is making a hundred million dollars a day, your expenses have to be less than a hundred million to be saving money. Uh, Far out. So you just have, so you're building a skyscraper you get a day. to that ninety nine and you're fine for the day. <laughs> Man, Jesus! Can someone Christ. assassinate that guy? Far like, out! He's such an. He's. Have you, have you heard his laugh? Yeah, no, he's so fucked, isn't he? He is evil. 
Okay, to be fair, look, he's sort of invested in basically the infrastructure of the future. So from what I've heard, Amazon basically owns all the servers that Netflix and all the streaming services operate on. I think he has a major share in Uber and would will probably be looking at the industries of the 2030s and 40s, which will be drone-delivered food. And so I think I would guess Uber Eats is just like the, the sort of nascent form of that where eventually everyone will just be getting their food from like an Amazon drone. Oh, man, that's so sad. And he will control it all. But also at the same time, I'm kind of sitting there being like, it would be more convenient. Yeah, it would be very convenient. (laughs) And just self-cooking kitchens, right? So like already like the food production line is basically getting quite automated. Mm. You'll get to a point where it just be entirely automated. A drone will just pick it up, deliver it. Now imagine if that technology was in the hands of an of a, of a truly benevolent government that actually wanted to like give sus, like nourishing sustenance to the population without them having to worry about something as frivolous as whoa what do I have to get for dinner tonight? So that could be incredible technology, but of course it's going to be in the hands of Bezos and his ilk, and we'll all be addicted to our phones, but be having our uh, Amazon drone-delivered food, maybe um, cellular agriculture. Hey, that might be good. Maybe, but, like, By what, what, what do you think he's – what do you think's motivating him? Just, I think he's just an addict. I think he's just, like, a power addict at this point. Like, he's addicted to the constant uh, accumulation of power. Like, he just never stopped playing Monopoly. Okay. It's such a weird reason for resources to be distributed. It's really scary thinking about that, that like because of the the, the psychology of one man, like the rest <laughs> of the world the is world. completely shaped, yeah. completely shaped. Because even with Amazon, I, the, I would imagine the ultimate goal for him is that for all businesses to eventually be online – and they have to operate through Amazon. Already it's getting to that point. And so he owns the infrastructure of the future. It's not like he's owning the the actual products and services of the future. I mean, he isn't actually what was he invented. He just invented the means by which other products are delivered, which is Amazon. But Maybe. it is in in some ways, yeah, it's smart. And he thought, or well, you know, like this would be like the entrepreneurs in the 1800s owning the railroads, mm. or like you know, whichever country owns the shipping lanes, or mm. not owns, but has their naval bases there. It's like okay, we own the like necessary avenues of the production line and the infrastructure through which everyone else is dependent upon and that is an immense amount of power. And I was thinking about this actually in the context of comedy in Australia the other day and I thought, well, what is more powerful, like being the famous comedian that everyone knows or being the either the management company or the institution that can say, I can make you famous? Mm. Like that is power. Mm. Mm. And because of the way digital media is completely cannibalizing itself and also just it's in a state of total chaos, we don't know what those monopolistic institutions are going to look like in 10 years. Mm. I'm sure there will be some monopolies there because it just always seems to sort of move towards that. 
And you could argue there's like ample opportunity to be like the Jeff Bezos within that small world and and own the infrastructure of Australian comedy in the future. Yeah. Like the, like the method by which comedians can achieve status, if you sort of own that or are in control of that, like that, then you like are the kingpin. Yes. Because there's a certain, there's like a few management companies in Australia that, uh, one in particular that, uh, and credit to this guy, he just started it in the 90s and he sort of could see where the like, where the profit was and it was in sort of corporate um, comedy and he just like really honed in on that and he also created certain shows that were sort of an avenue for him to grow his inv- investments in many ways. Like a talent scout is actually, you're gambling, right? You're like betting on a stock. Like yeah, hey, you're the, here's is. this like you're 18 broker. year old comedian. I think if with my like value that I can add to this given asset, they can become immensely profitable in 10 years. Yes. That's what like a good manager, well, I mean like there's an ethical argument there. It's like, what are you actually doing to the art and the artist and things like that? But that's what a good manager should be thinking. Whereas like a bad manager is like, hey, this person makes money, sick, I'll do all their admin and get 20%. Like that's a shit manager. That is a good a manager. Shit it's like, manager. hey, I can sort of, I see the potential in this person, but that potential can only be discovered with my added value, with skills that I only have, or with opportunities that I can only provide. And I'm willing to um, offer those at a loss for me for maybe three or four years, uh, under the promise that it will become it's incessantly profitable in five to ten years. So, look, you could even be thinking about that in terms of, say, political commentary in Australia. What is, like, the infrastructure through which political commentators will operate in the next 10 to 20 years in this country? Because, yes, Murdoch still has, like, immense influence, but it's slowly dwindling and he's going to die soon enough. And then I don't know what will happen to the empire, whether that one son will take over or just... which And, you know, no one is ever going to have the same degree of uh like ambition and just like rapacious need to continually expand that media empire as him so plus it's not going to be look you know what this was amazing between you and i i was shocked by this and everyone and everybody so i forgot there was like thousands of people watching um but isn't this incredible uh when i was in queensland i was talking to uh someone in the palaszczuk government's staff right and i was like how the fuck are you staying in power when the entire press is the murdoch press and all they do is hound you day in day out and obviously that just bleeds into radio and television what they're reporting on and they said it's because anastasia palaszczuk's facebook page is big enough to rival that media infrastructure now now isn't that nuts Mm. one woman's facebook page is not as big as like the entire reach but enough to just like constantly hit against the narrative that is being put in the murdoch press so it has been completely disrupted Mm. having said that the way that social media is set up where there's a few um, giants that also control the infrastructure through which these small media companies 
which is what a f- large Facebook page is. It's essentially like a small media company. They own the, the infrastructure through how, uh, the means by which they operate. And therefore, like at any point, you know, if enough money was on the table, if they were corrupt enough, Facebook could be like, no. Which is already, like they have the ability to do that already. Mm. And so then there's an argument either way. It's like, oh, it should be regulated as a as a public utility or they should just let any. And then Mark Zuckerberg is actually quite libertarian, I think. I think he in, in his personal worldview, he would just allow anyone to say what they want unless it actually goes against the laws. But it's just like the machine of Facebook. And, so, and even Facebook itself is arguably dying, but like it's the machine of social media and the sort of its need to like keep up a good profile and I'm sure it's like PR team is always trying to fight against nefarious headlines, even though like press headlines, like why are like major institutions still so worried about like the headlines of the press? Like yes, they still hold a lot of stead and and they'll trickle down, but like they're just slowly dwindling in their power. Mm. You know, it's just kind of laughable what the paper writes about now, at least to someone like me, a 28-year-old. Mm. I'm sure like a 58-year-old is like, oh, oh, goodness. Yeah, 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 true. Like, it's like, what? what? It's, the, it's the paper. <laughs> <laughs> like, who cares? <laughs> That's so true. I didn't even think about that before. They're still, still seemingly quite caught up and even companies are still, like a company, it's a different thing. But I, man, I actually really respect companies that, if they experience bad press, say, well, we don't care. This is our, this is our brand. It's, it's rare and far and few in between, but uh, they are commendable. Yeah, it's sick. I think also because it's just like a business move of, look, once we get rid of the riffraff, we'll have like a core devoted audience and you it's can build true. from there. Yeah, it's still probably like ultimately a profit decision. But I would argue more companies would benefit from that if people could see certain companies going against the woke tide mm. particularly as a small or medium-sized niche company that exists solely or primarily on social media that's what you want and you can use a lot of the influencers as a means of marketing i think there's a few brands in america doing that and there's like a coffee brand but although they backed out from one conservative commentator and it was like a big controversy there or whatever. But um, there was one brand that actually dropped, I think, they, give me if I'm wrong here, but they dropped Arnold. It was like an Arnold brand, like it had his namesake and they said, we can no longer sponsor Arnold because he said something about uh, vaccines and how they should be mandatory. I, I, can't, I can't remember exactly what it was, but it was something bizarre like that. And they were being applauded by, you know, right-wing Twitter, but uh, decried by uh, the left, as in, sorry, the rest. Um, (laughs) And, yeah, it's a weird sort of, because even the polarization is actually hurting media. Like Spotify, for example, it was quite telling that they backed Joe Rogan amidst all the controversy because that means, one, I'm sure the people who wield a lot of power in that organization are probably in favor of the general ideology, whether it's the ideology that Joe Rogan spouts or it's just like an ideology of 
you know, a broad cultural ethos of freedom of speech. But it also means companies are starting to catch on to the fact that it is actually potentially more profitable to ignore the noise on social media. You know, Netflix, another perfect example, despite all the noise on social media, maintained its stance on Dave Chappelle and, you know, regardless of how terrible the comedy was in there, it was good to see the company saying, no, we don't care that you're offended. But it also must mean that, like, hey, it's profitable for them to do that. No, I think it also, like, it's, it's, I think it's, look, the wokeness has gone so far that even companies like Netflix that just produce endless woke content, uh, it's like, it's truly like gotten to that phase where it's like, all right, you're taking the piss at this point. So it's just gone too far for them. And they've obviously thought like, all right, there's a limit to be made. You have to make a limit. But I don't really see that as going against the woke tide, them supporting Dave Chappelle. Dave Chappelle's argument was extremely woke. Yeah, it was like I'm black and that's worse than being <laughs> trans. That, <laughs> that's very true, yeah. <laughs> like, fair, fair. Uh, but anyway, I guess uh, I, I just thought it was interesting. I wish that they did though because it was amazing. When I was last in Brisbane with Ali, we were just watching TV and he was just like, dude, every fucking ad now is woke. Not one isn't. Even if it's for like King G shorts, you know. Yeah, you can always. The undertones are there. Yeah, yeah. You can see one little thing where they're like, oh, they're doing just a little bit of subtle social engineering there, which <laughs> for the most part it can be it can be a good thing. But uh, it must be that like the people who work in marketing and advertising you know what I think it is? I think it's like people in just particularly those industries, marketing and advertising. Look, when you get into something like investment banking, you talk to them, they're like, yeah, yeah, I know I'm a cunt. Like mm. I'm trying to just make as much money as I can. Mm. Like, there's nothing virtuous about what I'm doing. It's just, I mean, mm. they might not say those words directly, but they're not trying to sort of toy with the idea of their- They're good. Yeah, like they, they know what they are. Yeah. Um, I think in marketing and advertising, I'm- guessing like whether consciously or subconsciously people might still really be attracted to the idea like I'm an avatar for social change and I can Mm. enact social change and Mm. I can be a force for good in the world when Mm. at the end of the day like you're trying to convince people to buy things that they probably don't need. Yes. and You're you're a terrible person. And by all means I'm trying to say I'm kind of some, you know, beacon of virtue. I'm trying to just make people laugh. Yeah, we've got, we've got our sponsors here, but... Uh, yeah, but they're not fucking NAB. I'm not trying to... Yeah, but like when it's sort of sh- that, it's it's so obviously manufactured and artificial and shallow virtue. And it's like, oh, look, we, just, we had a, a fat woman and a, and a black person on our ad and like... Look, I did just do – I did a podcast today with Eliza. Look, that clearly means a lot to a lot of women to have, like, you know, different representation of bodies in ads. And for some men – see, like, I don't like it when there's, like, a chubby guy in an underwear ad. I want to see <laughs> – I want to see the cunt from The Bachelor that speaks like 
an Aussie caricature talking about tradie undies. Yeah, of course. I don't want to see a guy with man boobs. Okay. No, you don't. I, but for women, I think they generally, I don't know, you don't, the women who listen to this tell me if I'm wrong, but they, it, it means a lot to see, you know, different representation of body types on advertising. But I also think it's, you know, at the end of the day, they're looking at what is one, garnering attention in the attention economy. And two, what is actually just profitable at the end of the day? Like what is the feeling people are going to get with their brand when they see this like 10-second ad? Because you're not thinking, you're just taking this information in. Like what is the initial feeling you get? Like I still go back to this like McDonald's ad I saw. I think it's still running on TV. It's just like a, a woman going into Macca's drive through and then like telling her mother she's pregnant and they both cry and then it like ends with an M. And it's like, what the f- what the fuck does that have to do with burgers? But it's all <laughs> about like to that you're, you're getting, you're getting a, a feeling of like just a, a wholesome feeling associated with that symbol, that brand. It's, it's very cult-like in many ways and it's just seeping into your subconscious and next time you see that M, suddenly you get this little spike of serotonin, you don't know why. Tell you why, predatory marketing, that's why. <laughs> predatory but effective marketing. It really is. That is predatory as it gets. <laughs> yeah, I mean. I'm, I'm pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> not, nothing to do with burgers. Not even close. <laughs> what, 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 like, <laughs> I would really like to know how the director justifies that ad other than saying, yeah, yeah, no, this is just really just like emotional exploitation. That's it. Yeah, yeah like, it's, it's very manipulative, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, linking the most important moment of your life with, with McDonald's. The, with the M, yeah. <laughs> and not even saying something like, you know, we're good, we're good times are shared or anything like no, that. No, it just, just had an M. McDonald's. Yeah. <laughs> That's all. I like it. I like yeah, that I mean, ad, it's actually. Just it's, so so it's so audacious. Yeah, it's just a- <laughs> But all of the ads, yeah, Ali's exactly right. Every ad, every even like the sports ads and the beer ads. That's fucked. Like beer ads in the 2000s were just like really funny. Like the what, the drop bear one, that was just funny. Yeah. You know, and then a bunch of like Swedish backpackers in bikinis ran out and had to go into the mail tent. Because the actual bear, the, 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 the sorry, that wasn't the beer ad. Oh, the, yeah, the that's right. Like, yeah, you shaved your like, way, They're mate. like, oh, you yeah. can't camp there. They're drop bears. What are you talking about, drop bears? You're making that up. And then, like, yeah. the, the actual bungee run bear fell onto them. It was amazing. <laughs> and had to run into the mail tent with uh, bikinis. But, like, you can't Memorable. even. Yeah, you can't. Wouldn't be, Obviously, wouldn't be able to do that now. But, um, you know what? Damn, the- that was funny. And, like, the beer ads now are still kind of funny, but, like, there's you can see they've, like, clearly been tainted and lost the edge that they once had. Yeah, and you know what it is. It is uh, You know what I think it is? I think, look, it would be more profitable to do that, but they're in the corporate nexus because they all have that ideology. They will all make it their business to make sure that it's just like, you know, they did the Bundaberg Act and then all these other like news outlets and other companies and things are just like, everybody, this is not acceptable. And so they just give it so much negative press that they would make it a self-fulfilling prophecy of it not being profitable. Yeah. 
That's what's happening there. It's not actually the public that are determining that they don't want to buy the Bundaberg. I think the public would not give a fuck about that. Well, ad. Especially the core audience of Bundaberg rum. Of course. You think they give a fuck? <laughs> no, but they just like have so much negative advertising that they would have the exact opposite of the McDonald's mum I'm pregnant thing of just this general negative feeling about it where they think, nah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the bank ads are the worst now, aren't they? They're just They're like, we're investing awful. in women's sport. It's like, what are you well, actually doing? And like, tell That's me the specifics. So like, what necessary. are you actually doing to invest? But no, there's just like a a shot of like some girls playing cricket. It's just like, Commonwealth Bank. What? You have so you're much money. telling me what you're doing. Yeah. No. Like, how many Probably. things could you be investing in? Yeah. And, and you choose girls' cricket. <laughs> It's like maybe the worst thing that you could possibly invest in ever. It's just like, first off, it's like, dude, it's like it's trivial to begin with. And the second thing is it sucks. Like why are you fucking trying to make it mad? Like just stop. Just fucking put it in something else. (laughs) Fuck. (laughs) Makes me so angry when I see that every time. Just Commonwealth Bank being like, yeah, girls cricket and all of their billboards. Nothing has made me more infuriated in my entire life and I think it's because at the end of the day, it's just like, how many fucking orangutans did you kill to get that fucking billboard of you just saying that you're fucking supporting, the, you know, the, the under 12s tidal wave Adelaide brigade or some shit. But the irony is that that investment is actually probably what's spurring on some more interest in in because those major corporations have so much power and sway that, okay, what I figured out to get a show onto TV, and I've learned this through many very dull meetings, they don't even care that much about the show. They care that like one of the first questions they ask is like, do you have any brands um, associated with it yet? Because if you've got the brands associated and you've got a production company that has production experience, they don't give a fuck about the show. Wow. They'll, they'll convince themselves, oh, yeah, it's a good idea. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And so, like, all right, you've got the Commonwealth Bank attached. Mad. That's a lot of advertiser revenue for us. Okay. Um, Damn. So now, yeah, corporations are actually enacting cultural change and are, like, the source of people's happiness like whether they feel good about themselves, it's no longer like their their community or their family or even like their religion. It's like, did the ad from this one bank make me feel good? That is really- Like if your self-esteem is dependent on like the advertising campaign of a major bank, you got to question your life. I know. It really does show the- the level of human being they're aiming those ads at. You would have to be such an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but again, I don't think they're like, I think there's a, it's a small proportion that are like really being affected by it. But, but what it, what's occurring is like in people's sort of day-to-day lives, they're not fully taking in the ads. Like we never like focus that much when we're listening to ads, right? But just a little feeling is seeping in and you're like, oh, that was nice. Like, oh, that's nice. Like, they're supporting things that I like. That sound good. Damn. 
And I bet you they've done some corporate analysis of like, oh, free most spot. We can see the the pro the the growth projection of profit in the next case. Like, do, do they actually care about like the equality, or are they like, all right, in twenty years, female sport is projected to grow by three hundred percent, and as a result, it would be smart to invest now. I'll tell you what, there's actually probably some truth to that. Yeah, I bet it will be growing massively in the next ten to twenty years. Well, Murdoch was very sure to make sure that he was getting a bunch of government grants to promote women's sport. So they obviously have they, they they do see some growth in it. It works in any it works for everyone, right? Because like the people, the cultural engineers in the government would think, well, this is good. This is like supporting equality. Which look, yes, it it to a degree it is. But then Murdoch would think, oh, imagine if like w- there was like an equally as watched female rugby league as there is a male rugby league double the revenue for me mm. mad let's like mm. push this as much as possible mm. especially when sport is one of the only big money spinners left in media in australia anyway yeah so it's win-win and he's probably thinking now oh in 20 years there might be like an open gender sport <laughs> open gender nrl <laughs> <laughs> Which is anyone can make. <laughs> There's the male NRL, the female NRL, and it's just like oh, yeah, and he's just projecting oh, that it'll just be like, well, you know, it's still twenty percent of the same revenue. Yeah. I mean, that's better than just another you know bought storage wars. Yeah, and guess what? The betting company's like, hey. We can add all sorts of multis now when there's like female sport as well. Like this isn't just like some like in sort of nascent cultural movement that it's taken hold. This is like driven by. Profit. Now that you've even mentioned it, God, it's so obvious that that's what's happening. I never thought about it before. Hey, sports just, bet. I mean, every time like, I was hey, just like, more options for us. Give a fuck so much about female sport. Well, I think yeah. If, like if you're managing a sports betting company, amazing. Get a bunch of get a bunch of blokes to bet not just on the male NRL game but the female NRL game. And hey, looky. Uh, the day that like a sports betting company is going to come out and say like, "Hey, support equality, <laughs> bet on this like multi-gendered multi," <laughs> it's probably happening already. Like, hey, Jesus bet Christ. on the men and the women. Like, that's going to happen. There's probably an ad already like that out there, and that is going to be the day when like a sports betting company is acting virtuous. That that's just going to be that. Surely, like woke marketing can't get any worse than that. <laughs> It can't get any more transparent. I think that that's probably fucking hell. I never even thought about the social engineering going into that. That that is that is a huge movement off of something frivolous. This is this is such a thing that's it's really scary. How what happens when like a business kind of satiates itself and and is just so behemothly profitable what does it do then wants to expand another market so it just invests all of these resources into making something that's virtually pointless like what is pro women's rugby really like to the to the world how much money is being put behind that that could be put on so many other things that are beneficial for society? Yeah, but and it, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because if that's you invest in it enough, it actually becomes a behemoth. And But that's well, what they're thinking like long-term in the future, but it's amazing that they're just thinking, oh, okay, so from the ground up, what we're going to have to do first is 
create a taste for it. So what does that mean? Okay, that means that we have to put women commentators on the footy show. That means that we're going to have to start airing female rugby games that no one's watching at and just like making a big song and dance about and having Katy Perry come there and things like that. There's all this as, you know, the normalization of it. Yeah. You know? Like they, they, so they are thinking about it. It's like it's it's so many resources are going into it that they're actually like hiring social psychologists to think about Probably it. Probably making a loss right now. Like I mean, the, massively. The, 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 yeah, the investment. They in are. They are. The yeah, government actually, is supporting it. Yeah, they are. The government a loss. is bailing yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> waiting for a sports betting company to be like, bet on the women's NRL and you win no matter what happens. Just to get people hooked on <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Because the government <laughs> is bailing that. <laughs> Damn. Yeah, you. you yeah, fuck. It's, it's, it's actually so. You know. You know what's a very grating about it? Just such a waste. Such a waste of everyone's time and effort. <laughs> I hate that. It's really made me very sad thinking about that. The Bill Burr had a good bit. Oh, no, I'll probably wrap it up here, but uh, in his new special, where he was saying um, they've done studies, they've shown women are on average smarter than men, which I actually haven't heard. But um, then you know, women must drive past like a football game and seeing like the the people who are major football fans, like fat dudes with beer bellies, like bumping each other with their <laughs> beer belly and think, how are we losing to that? It's because, like, the people who are actually going to support female sport a lot are probably going to be like, uh, I, I, I do think a lot of women are supporting it, but uh, I don't think, like, the average woman is going to be as interested in sport as the average man is. Yeah, it's not happening. It's no win. It's never going to be as profitable. Big and Like, a big sort of basically a propaganda campaign to change something like that. Well, you know what actually is probably happening? This is the whole th- and why the it's government's tr- putting it in. It's well, not even- trying to get men to be interested in it. Trying that's to get men to be in- to. Well, that's, Jesus, that's not going to happen. But like- If there's betting, they will. Man, fuck. I think that that's probably what's happened. It's just, it's it's come to the point where the market is so, so satiated that they think, all right, well, let's just roll the dice on this. We've got enough money to just gamble on that and see if it works. Like this is the elite sports bet is can we right, make so women's rugby betting. even a thing in the first place? But you're right. Like if you think about it, it's just like women aren't going to be interested in that. They might just like give it a little clap online and be like, yay, girls getting it done and all this stuff, but they're not going to actually go and like buy jerseys and, and like analyze the game. And, and listen to the post-game analysis no. and the pre-game analysis. And like <laughs> Free it, and know, post. Argue about which uh, <laughs> commentator on NRL 360 is more of a cunt. Like I don't think. <laughs> man, maybe, maybe. But um, I can't see that happening in at least the next 10 years. No. But, you know, maybe in another 20 years could change. Um, Actually, you know what else about that study? I hate that study. It's so misleading. Because you know what is, you know what that study is saying? Because they're always saying the average of it, and it's like, yeah, but that's very reflective in all societies. All societies, women on average are smarter than men. Right. But like but- when you look at the actual curve of intelligence, it's always men at the top, and very few women. And men at the bottom. Men at the top and the bottom, it's and like women the, are in the, the middle. Range of men is like is vaster. 
yeah. what I've heard. Way more vast. Mm. So, yeah, like, it, see, it's just another one of those, like, clap things. Which I suppose, actually, I was thinking oh. about it a lot. It's like, dude, that that is what... Going against woke culture is very unintelligent. I've noticed this. It's just such a thing that intelligent men do in these societies. Like they just give like all of these brigaders and things, their little pats on their heads, and then they just go back and work as the drones that they are. They just kind of feed into it and like, yeah, 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 that's true. Girl power, yeah, that reports uh, should be on my desk on Monday. Okay, thanks. Same thing. It's like it's it's just like it's you know like that's it's it's the smart thing to do. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I can see. Yeah, there's there's definitely a bit of truth to that, um, or potentially a lot of truth to it. Yeah. So, are you saying that it's just kind of like you're just like making? certain ilk of women on mass feel good with in the moment but ultimately like a, there are no major like systemic changes in that it's still the mm. man that's ultimately like choosing to push these narratives because they know it's going to be profitable no it's not even that it's just like i'm talking about just on a purely managerial sense it's just like okay well this is where the momentum is going in society Right. If I just been to it, that's really all you have to do. You just have to sit there and just have your little, I don't know, acknowledgement or whatever at the beginning of every speech you do and then you just fucking go on and continue on with business. Yeah, and it's just these right, kinds right, right, right. of – it's actually just a very superficial surface level thing that is being demanded and I think that the average – I mean, you know, the, the CEOs of society and all this kind of stuff just – know that they can just say that and then continue on with their day as exactly as it is. It's like, it's, it's, it's an amazing, I don't think that there has ever been a point in civilization where there has been a movement that has been more superficial. It is based off of superficiality <laughs> on a grand scale. What is the aim of like all of this change is like at the end of the day is to get people that look slightly different in different positions. And that's the end goal. Theoretically, there was a school of thought that said, Hey, it, it sort of takes into account. It sort of loosely aligns postmodern ideas and, and with like a, a sort of, conception of marxism that's often called cultural marxism but it's not really it's nothing like what karl marx wrote about but what it does have in common is like it's the oppressor class and the oppressed class and it's then then sort of extrapolates that and says it's it's about race and it's about gender and it's about sexuality and it also intertwines critical theory and says that like whenever there's a binary of sorts there's one group that holds power and one group that is subordinate and unless you sort of like break apart that binary and that's where like you the, the the word queering it's supposed to mean like constantly queering a binary so even if you get to a point where like gay and straight even if if you're accepting of gay it's still a binary 
and straight will eventually become like the powerful group, right? And then the postmodernism comes in where it says, okay, the idea of say, you know, rationality or like empirical thinking is actually like a, a, a construct that keeps certain groups entrenched in power. And instead you need to listen to underprivileged groups that do not hold this power status and give credence and leeway to their ideas, regardless if they like suit or conform to the parameters that have previously been agreed upon, such as, you know, rationality or whatever it may be. And as a result, if you can sort of just put people from those underprivileged groups in power, their view of looking at the world is inherently from an oppressed class and therefore it will fundamentally change society to be more equal. That is like in my best estimation, that is like the theory. Now, I don't agree with it personally, but that is the theory behind it. Then I think what would have happened is like corporations have caught on to that or there's been like a loose link between those sorts of academic ideas seeping into, you know, HR and psychology that then seeps into corporate, uh, you know, marketing departments and um, advertising departments that then just seeps into the consciousness of the population because people in like advertising and marketing actually have a hell of a lot of sway in like what people are being fed. That's, I guess, like a brief summary in my best estimation of maybe how. Holy like, shit, man. Yeah, that was an amazing summary. That was an amazing. I've never actually heard someone articulate their position properly. It's because, because it is always argued at that shallow corporate level. And the reason that it's argued at that shallow corporate level is because they only want the superficial aspect of it and I think that that's the same thing that I was talking about before. I honestly think that is because it is not harmful to profit as if, if you extract the class element from it and you just keep it at like a racial sex thing. It's not harmful to profit at all then. But then you've just completely destroyed how the theory is supposed to work. Hmm. You've completely taken that out. You've gutted the soul entirely. It's a genius move. Yeah, and on no, top of that, you know what else? The way that they would see it as well is kind of like, oh, okay, we've got more brains uh, from people because we've like normalized the idea of, I don't know, like black CEOs or something like that. So we've got more people, that, like the, a, a larger pool of people that we can use in our corporation that'll be like more competent and more intelligent to make profit for it. That's how they would interpret that. They would interpret it the exact yeah. opposite way of what the academics were trying to get out of it. Yeah, I, there has even been academics that were uh, significant in promulgating these ideas within academia that have even come out and said, like, what the way these ideas have now been represented in mainstream society is not what I intentionally hoped for. I mean, very obviously. Yes, because so a lot of these so ideas grating were, and so obvious what's happening. Yeah, they were very tightly linked with a more uh, socialist or uh, 
you know, anti-capitalistic view of the world and, and to see that businesses are the cheerleading sort of like, mascot yeah, caught of capitalism. And now <laughs> basically usurped it into their... <laughs> Well, <laughs> it's so arguably evil. a genius <laughs> move by corporations. Genius. Arguably. Amazing. Because yeah. you know what else it does as well? This is the incredible thing that I think is amazing about it. Uh-huh. It gives soulless, awful people an idea and, and uh, something to grasp onto to be like, no, no, I'm actually a good person. I'm fighting the good fight. It gives them a little justification in their mind that they're actually mm. doing something good for the world which they did not have before. And I reckon, again, they would have graphs just being like, people like having something to strive for. They want meaning out of their work. Well, here's a way to do that. We will make you the the uh, the, the manager of quotas in, in, in H&R, you know? Like, so mm. it's, like it, it's, it's given, again, like kind of like what we were talking about with fake fun, with TikTok and all this kind of stuff, it's given like, you know, it's fake essence virtue. de virtue, mm-hmm. yeah. Like the the flavor of you're a good person, mm. amazing. Yeah, yeah. Well, genius in both ways. Genius, it really is, isn't it? Like, yeah, it's pretty amazing. Good on him. Actually, now yeah. that I think about it, I'm, I, I don't know. I, I, it's it's so. It's one of those things where it's like, it's so. Uh, it's so evil, like you just got to take your hat off to it. Well, they are actually <laughs> putting that sort of that, that idea of putting people with different, inherently different experiences into those positions of power is ironically working, but it's sort of maintaining and facilitating the continued growth of a system that those academics, I would assume, would be widely against. So, if anything, they're just further exacerbating the like entrenchment and control of major corporations in the Western world when I'm guessing most of those academics would actually have wanted those sorts of ideas promulgated more in the world of government and just sort of seeping into the general consciousness of each individual yeah. rather than being like bastardized by corporations. Yeah. But anyway... Um, Thank you for listening, guys. It's a good one. It was nice and long. Um, yeah. Hope you liked it. We will. We'll see you next time. There you go.